You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 414 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As you guys know, with the last episode, we wrapped up our discussion of the Battle of Chickamauga. In real life, the end of the battle and the conclusion of that campaign transitioned right into the beginning of the Siege of Chattanooga. So, you might have expected us to start right in on the siege here on the podcast, but... But, before we start in on another major story arc with the siege of Chattanooga, we thought we'd step back from southeast Tennessee and northwest Georgia for a bit and use some episodes to talk about a few other events that took place around this same time period in 1863. First up, we'll head to Kansas where we'll take a look at one of the most infamous incidents that took place during the Civil War, the Lawrence Massacre, which happened in August 1863. It was quite a while ago, but way back in the early days of the podcast, with episode number 12, We looked at what happened in the territory of Kansas in the 1850s after the passage of Stephen Douglas's controversial Kansas-Nebraska Act. The act, passed on May 30, 1854, effectively repealed the Missouri Compromise, thereby reopening the controversy over the extension of slavery into Western territories. It also enraged Northern anti-slavery forces, who would coalesce into a new political party, the Republican Party. The passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act also led to a rush of anti-slavery and pro-slavery settlers into Kansas, and the settlement of the territory immediately became a hot-button national issue. Organizations in the North, such as the New England Immigrant Aid Company, were set up to promote anti-slavery immigration. Pro-slavery Southerners mounted a similar effort from Missouri. These two adversarial camps established rival territorial governments, even as violence erupted in the eastern part of the territory, mostly characterized by vicious, small-scale guerrilla warfare 
such as John Brown's murder of pro-slavery settlers in May 1856. Several days before, pro-slavery forces had sacked the town of Lawrence, an anti-slavery settlement, and Brown and his followers reacted violently to the news, killing five pro-slavery settlers in Franklin County. This massacre became the most notorious of the many violent incidents that racked bloody Kansas during this time period. Pro-slavery Southerners controlled the territorial legislature at Lecompton, by then the capital of the territory, and they drafted the Lecompton Constitution between October and November of 1857. It was designed to bring Kansas into the Union as a slave state. Meanwhile, the Free Staters set up a rival government at Topeka and elected its governor, Charles Robinson, an Amherst-educated physician and an agent of the New England Immigrant Aid Company. A fellow named James Lane commanded the Free State Militia in the ongoing guerrilla war. Lane was a Mexican War veteran who had been active in Indiana politics, serving as lieutenant governor and in Congress before moving to Kansas. The Lecompton Constitution was presented to the territory's voters in December 1857, but the Free Staters boycotted the vote. Despite the firestorm of controversy swirling around it, President James Buchanan nevertheless urged Congress to admit Kansas as a slave state under the Lecompton Constitution, and the Senate concurred. However, the House of Representatives rejected the Lecompton Constitution, and it was resubmitted to the territory's voters. In August 1858, it was the pro-slavery forces that boycotted the second vote, and the Lecompton Constitution was defeated. In the end, Congress would admit Kansas to the Union as a free state in 1861, under the terms of the Wyandotte Constitution of 1859. Throughout this time, the acts of bloodshed and terror that characterized the bitter struggle between the pro-slavery and anti-slavery forces continued unabated. As the never-ending violence caused ceaseless turmoil in eastern Kansas and western Missouri, the entire nation became familiar with the terms Jayhawkers, Redlegs, Border Ruffians, and Bushwhackers. With Abraham Lincoln's victory in the presidential election of 1860 and the subsequent secession of seven slave states, the nation edged closer to a civil war that had already been raging in Kansas for almost six years. Charles Robinson, who had been re-elected territorial governor in 1859 under the Wyandotte Constitution, assumed office in 1861 as Kansas was admitted to the Union, while James Lane became one of its first U.S. Senators. Even as the nation plunged over the precipice into a shooting war after the firing on Fort Sumter in April 1861, Guerrilla raids continued along the Missouri-Kansas border as the Free State Jayhawkers and Redlegs and the pro-slavery Border Ruffians and Bushwhackers 
now found themselves siding with the Federals or Confederates in the Civil War. As the course of the war saw organized Confederate military forces pushed out of Missouri and into Arkansas by superior Federal armies, dozens of defiant, rebellious men in the western Missouri counties bordering Kansas took to the woods and continued the fight from there, harassing Union soldiers in Missouri and launching small-scale raids into eastern Kansas. However, the damage and distress caused by the actions of these rebel bushwhackers, while very real, nevertheless paled in comparison to the large-scale acts of looting, arson, and murder carried out by the Kansas Jayhawkers in western Missouri. For example, in September 1861, James Lane, having secured a commission as a brigadier general, led roughly 1,500 men across the state line. Lane proudly dubbed his command the Kansas Brigade, but according to Thomas Goodrich in his book Black Flag, Guerrilla Warfare on the Western Border, 1861-1865, the Kansas Brigade was, in reality, quote, little more than a mob of thieves and adventurers. On September 23rd, Lane and the Kansas Brigade reached the town of Osceola, Missouri. Hundreds of shouting Jayhawkers ran through the streets, looting homes and shops. In an effort to prevent the men from getting drunk, officers tried to destroy the large stocks of liquor in the town. Although 150 barrel heads were staved in, many Kansans nonetheless succeeded in filling their canteens and themselves. William Johnson, the son of a U.S. senator whose home was destroyed, recalled, quote, The Yankees then loaded all the wagons they could find in Osceola and the vicinity with goods from the stores and records from the courthouse, and then burned the courthouse and the businesses and most of the residences. They then made a hasty exit. Perhaps 3,000 people were left homeless by the sack of the town by Lane and his Jayhawkers. A man in the Kansas Brigade wrote, When the sun went down Sunday night, Osceola was a heap of smoldering ruins. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. 
On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. In June 1863, Federal Brigadier General Thomas Ewing was placed in command of the District of the Border with headquarters in Kansas City. Just a bit of trivia, but the 33-year-old Ewing was the foster brother of William Tecumseh Sherman, and he became Sherman's brother-in-law when Sherman married Ewing's sister, Ellen. After practicing law in Ohio, Thomas Ewing had moved to Kansas in 1856. He opposed the Lecompton Constitution and helped Kansas gain admission to the Union as a free state. He served as the state's first Chief Justice in 1861. He remained on the bench for only one year since he resigned in 1862 to raise a regiment for federal service. Ewing was elected Colonel of the 11th Kansas Infantry and, as part of the Army of the Frontier, fought at the Battle of Prairie Grove, Arkansas in December 1862. When he was placed in command of the District of the Border in June 1863, Ewing had the unenviable task of dealing with the various bands of rebel bushwhackers operating out of western, the western Missouri counties that bordered Kansas. Ewing attempted to be more systematic in dealing with the bushwhackers. For example, he established a string of military posts down the state line. Ewing was confident this border guard, consisting of large camps of federal cavalry every 12 or so miles, not only would prevent small raids into Kansas, but would serve to alert the interior of the state should larger threats develop. Another plan formulated by Ewing was the arrest and imprisonment of families of known guerrillas living in his district and their banishment from Missouri. Up until that time, the federal military authorities had had little luck in ending the threat posed by the elusive bands of rebel bushwhackers. So Ewing decided to try an indirect approach by striking at the root of their civilian support in Missouri. Ewing began by arresting and confining a considerable number of the wives, mothers, and sisters of some of the most notorious members of the bushwhacking bands. Through the summer months, from the towns and the farms of Jackson, Lafayette, and Cass counties in western Missouri, these women were taken into custody by federal soldiers. They were locked up in certain buildings designated as military prisons in Kansas City. Well, naturally, the harassment and jailing of their womenfolk enraged the bushwhackers and crystallized their hatred of Tom Ewing. To make matters worse, rumors began to circulate that the Federals were considering banishing all the Bushwhackers' families from Missouri and sending them into exile. In fact, the rumors were true. Ewing had recognized the impossibility of imprisoning all of the families of the Bushwhackers since there simply was not enough suitable space available in Kansas City. Ewing also had the idea that if their families were banished to points south, then the bushwhackers would leave the region and follow them into exile. 
And so, on August 3rd, he wrote to his superior, Department of Missouri Commander Major General John Schofield, about the situation. Ewing's letter to Schofield is worth citing at some length, since it set the stage for a series of bloody and unfortunate events. Sir, about one-half of the farmers in the border tier of counties of Missouri and my district, at different times since the war began, entered the rebel service. One half of them are dead or still in the service. The other half, quitting from time to time the rebel armies, have returned to these counties. Unable to live at their homes, they have gone to bushwhacking and have driven almost all avowed unionists out of the country or to the military stations. And now, sometimes in squads of a dozen and sometimes in bands of several hundred, They scour the country, robbing and killing those they think unfriendly to them, and threatening the settlements of the Kansas border and the towns and stations in Missouri. So large a portion of the troops under my command are held fast, guarding the Kansas border and the towns and stations in Missouri, that I cannot put in the field numbers equal to those of the guerrillas. From the character of the country and people, and the great vigilance of the enemy, and the secrecy of their movements, it is rarely practicable to surprise them, and they will never fight unless all the odds are on their side, and they are too well mounted to be run down. About two-thirds of the families on the occupied farms of that region are of kin to the guerrillas, and are actively and heartily engaged in feeding clothing, and sustaining them. The presence of these families is the cause of the presence there of the guerrillas. I can see no prospect of an early and complete end to the war on the border without a great increase of troops so long as those families remain there. While they stay there, these men will also stay, if possible. I think that the families of several hundred of the worst of these men should be sent, with their clothes and bedding, to some rebel district south, and would recommend the establishment of a colony of them in Arkansas, to which a steamboat can carry them direct from Kansas City. I think it would not do to send them north, because the men would not follow them, while if sent south, the men will follow, I think. We think you'll agree that Ewing's letter, and the thinking behind it, is rather remarkable. And feel free to substitute ruthless or cruel for remarkable. It's all rather astonishing, right? But listen, folks, this was the Civil War on the Kansas-Missouri border. It doesn't get as much coverage or as much time in the popular spotlight as the great battles between the opposing armies that were fought in places like Gettysburg or Vicksburg or Chickamauga, but it was part of the Civil War nonetheless, and it was messy, vicious, bloody, mean, and nasty. In many ways, it was just a continuation and escalation of the bitter struggle between the anti-slavery and pro-slavery forces that had convulsed this region in the years prior to 1861. 
And after 1861, that bitter struggle continued. Only now it was war with no holds barred, a brutal contest that ultimately drew little or no distinction between combatants and civilians. On August 13, 1863, the Kansas City Journal newspaper informed its readers that General Ewing had been at department headquarters in St. Louis to obtain authority and make arrangements for the banishment from Missouri of the families of the bushwhackers. In his book, Gray Ghosts of the Confederacy, Guerrilla Warfare in the West, 1861-1865, Richard Brownlee writes, on August 14th, a tragedy occurred in Kansas City that was to throw its shadow over the rest of the Civil War on the border, one that was to intensify the ferocious hatred of the guerrillas for the Union forces and drive all humaneness from their minds. A large three-storied brick building which was being used as a prison for the guerrillas' women collapsed. Four of these girls were crushed to death one was fatally injured, and others seriously hurt. One of the dead, Josephine Anderson, and one of the injured, Mary Anderson, were sisters of Bill Anderson, who rode with William Quantrill, the most notorious of the bushwhackers. Up until this point, Anderson had been just another member of Quantrill's company, but after what happened to his sisters, he would earn the nickname Bloody Bill. The other dead and injured women were sisters, cousins, and a wife of men who rode with Quantrill. When news of the tragedy reached Quantrill's men, they set their sights on swift, bloody revenge. Typical of the bushwhackers' reaction was the frustration and fury expressed by John McCorkle, whose sister, Christy, was among the dead. He wrote, quote, we could stand no more. My God, did we not have enough to make us desperate and thirst for revenge? We tried to fight like soldiers, but were declared outlaws, hunted under a black flag, and murdered like beasts. The beautiful farming country of western Missouri, worse than a desert, and on every hillside stood lone blackened chimneys, sad sentinels and monuments to the memory of our once happy homes. And now our innocent and beautiful girls had been murdered in a most foul, brutal, savage, and damnable manner. We were determined to have revenge. No place seemed more suitable as a site to get that revenge than the town of Lawrence, Kansas. Not only had Lawrence been a well-known free state stronghold back in territorial days, but it was also the home of the despised Jayhawk leader, James Lane. When Quantrill addressed the assembled members of his company, he had only one target in mind, Lawrence. He told them plainly, We can get more revenge there than anywhere else in the state of Kansas. When someone pointed out that to talk of such a raid was little better than suicide, given the great distance involved, since Lawrence was some 35 miles west of the state line, not to mention the Federal cavalry manning the border posts, 
Quantrill agreed, admitting, I consider it almost a forlorn hope, for if we go, I don't know if any one of us will get back to tell the story, but if you never risk, you never gain. Despite the hopeless nature of the raid and the tremendous odds, the group agreed that the attempt would be made. And so, on the morning of August 19, 1863, William Quantrill and a force that would soon swell to over 400 bushwhackers set out, riding west toward the Kansas border and beyond the town of Lawrence. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Black Flag, Guerrilla Warfare on the Western Border, 1861-1865, to by Thomas Goodrich. Yeah, uh, as far as the guerrilla warfare along the Kansas-Missouri border, uh, if you're wanting to learn some more on your own about this riveting and often overlooked chapter of Civil War history, then Goodrich's book is a good place to start. Don't forget you can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Last weekend, we released members episode number 142, so we hope the folks in the Strawfoot Brigade enjoyed that show, including the newest members, Quinn M. and Sherry D., We thank all the members of the Strawfoot Brigade for their support of the podcast. We also want to thank Gear Jeannie for her donation, and we're glad we can keep her company while she's on the road. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, a history podcast. We'll be back next week with part two of this story about the Lawrence Massacre, So, Tracy and I do hope that you'll join us for that. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.